The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And rolling. Welcome to the Urban Broadcast Collective at the Peer Congress 2018 in Perth, Western Australia. With me, Dr. Paul McGinn from the University of Western Australia and my colleague, Dr. Tony Matthews from Griffith University. And we are delighted that we have the Copenhagenizers with us here for this podcast. And are we going to be talking about Copenhagen? Are we going to be talking about Denmark? Welcome, guys. How's it all going? Very well. Thanks okay. for having us. And we've got... Michael Wexler. Michael Wexler and... And James Tom. James Tom. Yeah. Now, you don't sound Danish. No. Oh, you don't you sound... Ca- you caught that. You don't sound like you're from Copenhagen either. So what, yeah. can you tell us where you guys are from? Sure. Yeah, in fact, actually, we're both Canadian. I'm originally from Toronto, uh, from Toronto, Canada. Sort of a background in urbanism and geography in Toronto. And then I moved out to Sweden to do my master's. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see what... Uh, other cities around the world are facing, so I figured I may as well pack up and leave Toronto. Ended up in Stockholm, did my master's there in urban planning before heading down to Copenhagen to start uh, start working with Copenhagen Ice once I graduated. And are you a UT Ryerson or York? U of T. U of yeah, T. Yeah. Okay. He knows all the lingo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because we've got four people at the table here, all yeah. in Australia, none of whom are from here, and mostly, you know, mostly foreigners working in foreign countries. And yeah, exactly. There you go. It's for the excitement of global yeah. urbanism, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, and Ma- Michael, where are you from? I'm from the competing city. I'm from Montreal. Okay. From French Canada. Okay, from uh, Leonard Cohen country. From Leonard Cohen country. Yeah, Le- Leonard and I come from a similar uh, Montreal Jewish upbringing oh, you're um, really yeah and uh, so I, I have had sort of a love affair with Copenhagen for about 10 years I studied there as a student many years ago uh, lived for a little while and then I ended up working with Copenhagen eyes uh, after my master's in Montreal uh, and then after some time ended up m- moving back to Montreal and bringing um, our first North American office so now I work for Copenhagen eyes out of Montreal and we deal generally with the North American clients okay, yeah. okay so Copenhagen eyes what does the? How did you come up with that name, and kind of what does it, what does it symbolize? Sure. Yeah, for me, um, I mean, there's different interpretations of it, but for me, it's all about knowledge transfer. Having other cities learn from best practice, whether you're talking about bicycle urbanism, whether you're talking about, uh, in other cases, maybe waste management, public transport, public spaces, all these different issues. I think there's a lot to be said about knowledge transfer between municipalities, between cities, learning what works, what doesn't. And for me, that's really what Copenhagen is embodies. Yeah. And for a little bit of background that ties into the idea James is talking about, um, our founder, uh, about 10, 12 years ago, started a blog called Copenhagen Eyes, yeah. uh, where he uh, just realized there's something amazing happening on the streets of Copenhagen with bicycle urbanism, with people using bicycles as a mode of transport, and something in the design of the infrastructure that's just so simple, intuitive, and and, and Danish in, in that it really follows this design tradition of simplicity uh, and ease of use. And he said, I need to document this and share this around the world. And so he started doing that. And uh, slowly by slowly, it turned into a consultancy, a one-man consultancy. And then over the years, uh, more of us have come on board, and we've been able to build into a small burgeoning business. And so, what is what is the secret? I mean, and like, what's what's the X factor? Uh, so we say the X factor is uh, a protected, connected network of easy-to-use infrastructure. 
yeah. because you can do all the social media campaigns in the world. You can do all the uh, ride to work campaigns and bike bike day, bike month, social programs you want in the world. But if you don't have the place to actually ride that is logical, yeah. comfortable, and enjoyable, yeah. then who's going to use it en masse? You're never going to get to that 99%. You're never going to get to the regular, you know, uh, as we say in Quebec, monsieur, madame, tout le monde. Everyone. Uh, these, this is our target demographic. I, I had to pull that out. Yeah. Um, can, can you give us the, the translation? So um, for, for the non-French well, Quebecois? Uh, the literal translation would be uh, Mr. Mrs. Everyone. Okay. Yeah. It sounds, nice. it sounds nicer in French. Um, it does sound nicer in French. <laughs> so, I mean, so Copenhagen, obviously it's in Europe and Denmark, but it's a, I mean, when you think of kind of space and scale mm -hmm. in comparison to Canadian cities where you guys are from and Australian cities where we're from, and then the cultural mindset as a kind of new nations, I suppose we can call yeah. it, you know, largely immigrant-based nations yeah. and so forth. You've got a very kind of, two very fundamental processes which are very different from Copenhagen, Denmark, Europe. Yeah. How do you kind of resolve that yeah, I mean, big phenomena? That's a question we hear over and over again, but maybe we should just take a step back and uh, explain why we're actually talking about Copenhagen itself. Yeah. This is a city that is uh, the most bicycle-friendly city in the world, where 45% of all trips in the region uh, to work or school are done by bicycle one of the richest cities and one of the wealthiest countries in the world uh, that has urban sprawl, that has all these issues, that has uh, crappy winters, and yet people are still riding a bike. And again, it is because there's this network of connected, dedicated, and reliable infrastructure. And you see, this is this question I'm always interested in with, with, with bicycle use is actually is the yeah. climate, right? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I live in Brisbane on the other yeah. coast here, the east coast, and I mean, it's... It's a rough climate in the summertime. It's not just hot, but it's humid. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's deadly humid. Uh, and I grew up in Cork in Ireland, which is a very wet and cold place. And mm -hmm. he grew up in Belfast, which is even wetter and colder. Um, certainly colder. Um, very humid, uh, but in the wrong type of humidity. <laughs> the wrong, type of, yeah. wrong type of humidity, or the right, depending. Yeah. Uh, um, and obviously, uh, in, in, in Nordic countries, you get pretty heavy winters. So how, yeah. do, you, how do you sort of get 12 months year-round cycle use? Again, it gets back into the concept of design. So um, one aspect of design is maintenance. So you have to have good infrastructure so that you can maintain it in an easy, easy enough fashion, uh, in, a, in a logical fashion, in a, in a cost-effective fashion uh, from the government perspective as well. And so we like to say in Copenhagen, being a snowy, cold city uh, in the winter, uh, the city has basically found a way to eliminate winter. Because essentially we find 75% to 80% of riders, and that's of the 45% in the metropolitan area we're talking about, 2.5 million people, 80% uh, of them ride through the entire winter. And the reason for that is that you uh, go to bed at night and you look at your apartment and you don't see any snow, but you see that there's a snowstorm forecasted. And you see this little machine going by, going and it's spraying this liquid brine, which is you know a novel way of pre-salting the road. So the, by the time the snowstorm comes, the salt isn't, uh, the snow isn't binding, and at that point it goes, bzzz, comes back again. And these priority corridors are all of the major streets with bicycle infrastructure. So you wake up in the morning, and there's actually a mandate that the government has. There has to be black asphalt when people are going to work in the morning. So it's like a train timetable. They've developed a, a, a system of infrastructure and maintenance of that infrastructure that makes it reliable year-round, no matter what. In hot climate, uh, the thing I think we have to keep in mind, the maintenance isn't quite as important. It's more about, I think, the communications and maybe the amenities and 
service you, you offer to people along the way. So being able to have uh, last mile shower facilities um, and things like that at work, being able to communicate to people that cycling doesn't have to be a sport yeah. in that you can ride an upright urban style, uh, European style urban bike where you're not hunched over, you don't have to be sweating because you can be in a higher gear taking your time with a rack or a basket for your bag. Um, so even in a hot climate, you can take your time and actually get a breeze and actually sometimes sweat less than you would walking to work. Yeah, well, that's true, actually, isn't it? Yeah, and that's always one of the things that, you know, if you've got a backpack on and you're in a hot climate, then yeah. you're in real trouble because your shirt is done for by the yeah. time you get yeah. there. And it doesn't always suit everybody to have the, you know, end-trip facilities. They sometimes they have to go straight into meetings of course. and things like yeah. that. Um, but that's interesting because it seems like the concern, therefore, in Copenhagen is less about the air temperature and more about reducing risk of slippage mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and wheels spinning out on icy roads and things yeah. like that. So if you can secure the cycling surface, people yeah. can weather against the, the weather. network. Make make the system feasible and people will regulate themselves in what they want to wear. Companies will yeah. open up that make, you know, a, a certain type of splash pant or a certain type of basket cover. I mean, all of those bells and whistles are great, but I think that part of, and I'm not a free market economist, but I think that part of the market regulates itself once the government builds that infrastructure. And then when cycling is much more comfortable, uh, one way that you can look at it is the, the bicycle rider is actually much closer to being a pedestrian than they are to being a motorist or a, an athlete, right? So they're comfortable, they're riding along, and they're just dressing for their destination. You know, they're just wearing the exact same clothes they would be wearing as they walk down the street in the exact same weather. Yeah. It's fairly novel. Well, I understand that, you know, myself, because I, I lived in Ireland until I was 30, and I cycled everywhere. I always did, and yeah. it was never really so warm that it didn't, you know, that you had to dress for the mm -hmm. occasion. So yeah. I would generally just be wearing whatever I planned yeah. to wear for the day, cycling to work, and I'd usually be, you know, pretty acclimatized within two or three minutes of getting mm -hmm. off the bike. Yeah. It didn't really matter. But as soon as I moved to a hot climate and tried cycling, it just blew out immediately. You know? mm. um, and, I, I, and, the, and there was also there was no segregated infrastructure yeah. Yeah. and I felt very vulnerable to traffic in a way I never Looking had before shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and heavy goods vehicles you know swinging yeah. around corners and we're also talking about the ur urban heat, heat island effect yeah, which is so ultimately if you can have good segregated paths that actually have uh, better tree coverage better canopy all of this you can actually bring the temperature down through good design again yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. so you've been in Perth for what the last week maybe last yeah. few yeah. days yeah. basically so we have I, I think we have a fairly good separated um, bike network here in mm -hmm. Perth. Basically, it runs along the river. Nice scenic pathways. Yeah. I, I live, you know, um, about eight k's from, from the CBD, and I can get down onto the river yeah. on a nice bike path where I can follow the railway line. What's your impressions of... Uh, I'm going to assume that you've been around looking mm -hmm. at the bike paths here because, you know, all good planners love a field trip, and you got to get out there and kind of get on the beaten track. Yeah. Um, what's what, what would you say is kind of... Perth's like? Sort of our first impressions, we went out for a ride Monday morning with some locals, people from state, people from the municipality, and we were impressed uh, in many instances of the design quality, the design standards of a lot of the infrastructure, especially the, um, the cycle tracks that we see. What district was it? In Vincent. In Vincent, yeah. yeah. On both traffic. sides of the street. Uh, so that's almost. the shared pathway going down uh, no, through? No, so we're talking about the protected on-street cycle track. Yes, so yeah, the parking yeah. protected, it has a concrete sort of modular curb, and then it looked like about 1.8 to 2 meters, which is sort of our minimum standard in Copenhagen for one-way cycle track. Yeah. yeah. To really allow, you know, a, a more leisurely rider who wants to not sweat too much in the summer is somebody who wants to zip by them on, well, I guess for you on the right. Um, yeah. We're still always <laughs> thinking the opposite. I, and you're on the, in the southern hemisphere as well, yeah, so it's double confusing. 
confusion. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, watching the toilet spin in the other direction. Yeah. That's mind blowing. <laughs> so, so you just did that inner urban kind of. No, but then we continued on and we did go along the river. Uh, and we rode along some of the the PSPs as they're called, the princi- principal shared pathways. Shared pathways. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, it was nice to ride along the river, get that nice mm-hmm. sort of recreational aspect to cycling too. But I think to get to the next step. The city has to start integrating in these off-street pathways into an urban network yeah. to really make it connected and really make this more of a, an accessible mode. Yeah, because when you ask the question about the network, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that there isn't really a network yet. I mean, there there are an, a series of connections. Um, there are some good facilities, and we were very impressed to see that, but it's not quite a network yet. Um, the same way that if you were to take out all of the sort of, we, we, we do some analyses for clients sometimes where we'll, we'll do map of their city because we generally work with cities as clients and they will show them uh, where are the islands of safety. So according to all the different parameters of vehicular speed, number of lanes, uh, topography, all these different elements, what are the, what are the streets that you're actually going to feel uh, safe? Um, so uh, it's, it's interesting. I think there's a, like James said, there's a lot of opportunity to connect some of those dangling nodes. Yeah. There are some really good facilities that can be then connected to, and we've talked to a lot of people who, who have a lot of uh, long-term vision, and I know that planning is happening. Yeah. So I think I think Perth's on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the way to, the best way to describe the network, it's very good for kind of point to point from long, from long distances. So when you follow the track down along the freeway, for example, mm-hmm. heading south, you know, you can follow, uh, you can go. You can cycle more or less from Mandra mm-hmm. all the way up into yeah, into Perth, basically, yeah. and it follows the railway line all the way up. Basically, yeah. so it's a nice, efficient um, arterial route, I suppose. So mm-hmm. it's not a network in a sense that there's lots of things branching off mm-hmm. it, going into the suburbs, and then when you get into into the city, I think here in the CBD, we could do a lot more just to have kind of more dedicated. Um, bike tracks, you know, mm-hmm. and, and space, basically, because mm-hmm. if you look at St. George's Terrace, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cyclists are kind of bombing down. Uh, when they're coming from the west to the east, because it's downhill, yeah. uh, you know, you're competing with, all, you are competing with a lot, a lot of cars, and I, I would cycle that route myself, mm-hmm. normally on a Sunday when it's quieter, yeah, yeah. you know, because you, you can get the speed up. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, there's been anything else about Perth that's kind of struck you about, um, I suppose, the bicycle infrastructure yeah. and networks? I think the thing that struck us most, and we've been talking about this with a lot of folks here for the last few days, is actually less about the infrastructure and more about the culture. Um, and I, I, we've seen this really strong push uh, from the spandex-clad cyclists, the racers, the yeah. weekend warriors. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, the famous mammals. Yeah, yeah the famous yeah. mammals. There you go. Uh, and... You know, ultimately, I think from a um, uh, all ages and abilities, eight to eighty, you know, cycling facilities for everyone perspective, um, some of that voice I think does a bit of a detriment, and it sort of uh, uh, creates more of more of a subcultural idea for especially a lot of motorists who are then uh, sort of taught to hate cyclists because they're cutting them off, yeah. they're going really fast, they all look the same. Instead they're going of just, through red lights. Exactly. Instead of just cars have to wait. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. So. so and they're dressed in an, in a not sort of recognizable way. You know, when you're uh, Mr. and Mrs. Everybody, if they're driving down the street and they look over and they see this guy covered in lycra, the, the helmet and all the kit, like the, the shoes and everything like that, they're not going to identify with them. Yeah. You know, when you have people dressed dressed for the destination rather than uh, dressed for the journey, then it's more it's easier to sort of recognize, see yourself in, in these cyclists. Yeah, I think, think it's an interesting point that you guys raise as well, is that, that whole sort of weekend warrior, that mammal thing. Yeah. Also, it's sort of a subculture, right? Yeah, that's and, and I think a lot of people find it... A, 
you know, distasteful subculture in a mm-hmm. sense. You know, yeah. we kind of look at them as like a modern incarnation of, of what golf was 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah, we heard that. We've heard that analogy a couple <laughs> yeah, times yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. like, it's easy to dislike them. And then yeah. they all tend to like get off their bikes at one place and cluster around and sort of, you know, drink coffee and look pleased with them, themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. I think that's, that can actually probably be quite off-putting to people. Yeah. But if you see somebody who's cycling down the road and, and, and they're dressed in normal clothes and they're yeah. kind of just going about their business and going from point A to point B and it's not about how fast they can get there how many Ks they can yeah, do exactly. it's a much more identifiable thing yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, another question that I was going to ask you guys is that um, you know obviously you do a lot of consulting with other cities mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know you're out in the road and you're, you're offering strategic advice and, and so on and so forth what kind of um, path dependencies are you coming up against you know what kind of embedded practices or embedded cultures or perspectives you're coming up against that you're finding are difficult to break down you know you you you, you get hired by a city to do some consulting around their cycling infrastructure and improving their network mm-hmm. what are the kind of barriers that you find that you come up against i think a lot of the time it has to do with the the um engineering establishment a lot right. of a lot okay. of at least i mean if we're talking about more nuts and bolts like from the actual project implementation side which we, we don't do the implementation ourselves we offer strategic advice to city workers that actually in the pl- local city planners well, yeah I, I, I understand that but it's kind of like you know you come along and you say, well, here's some strategic advice yeah. on how to improve um, cycling uptake in this yeah. city, and people go, oh, God, another bicycle ad. Oh, for sure, but I mean, that's, I think yeah. that's one of the biggest uh, uh, problems we face, that even when we meet planners that we work with at a city who, who you know, are enlightened on all of these subjects, they have visited Copenhagen, they've been to Northern Europe, they understand uh, good design from a user-oriented perspective, they feel like their hands are tied behind their back because of the engineering or the main roads authority that basically won't let them move forwards with anything innovative. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's about getting creative. And that's where, like, you know, the buzz in urban planning these days is tactical urbanism, is pilot projects. And this is really true in the cycling space, too, because at least you can try to pitch things yeah. that are innovative and different, but say, hey, it can fail because it's a temporary project. Yeah. And then you can create, collect that data, make that story, and then create that argument. Yeah. I mean, I mean I th- what you're saying there kind of reminds me of, you know, and this will probably take you back to your university days, yeah. the fact that po- planning, policymaking, and all, probably most policymaking is kind of incrementalism you do these things on kind of baby steps when you've got to kind of you know try to break path dependencies yeah um so you do novel innovative little ideas that might be temporary the whole idea of tactical urbanism i also like the idea of tactical suburbanism because we've Mm -hmm. got a very suburban culture here and i think when you talk about urbanism it's about what happens at the core and i think part of the language we have to do sometimes is talk about tactical suburbanisms Mm -hmm in a way because a lot of people will you know the the network as such as it is here is about trying to get people to commute longer distances yeah. mm-hmm. as well so yeah. um your presentation here yeah. and your uh, interactions with the planning community here how did that go for you so what was the kind of what's the response being super positive yeah mm-hmm. I, I think people have sort of really latched on to sort of the sort of the simple everyday approach that we're taking, that we're not tied up in uh, looking and dressing like a cyclist, that we are talking about a more identifiable, identifiable uh, approach to the mode and sort of seeing the bicycle as a tool, right? Uh, not as some fetishized things that you take off, take out on the weekend, polish up and uh, name it and everything like that. It's just really a simple tool that okay. makes the urban living much easier. I think the nice thing also being at a planning conference is that um, you know, a lot of the work we do is facing a lot of city engineers 
who um, I'm not going to speak ill of engineers, but there is well, that entrenched <laughs> standards. But, it's all about the standards. Exactly, and there's there's this know. entrenched view of this is how it's always done, so this is how it shall be done. Um, and especially, I mean, in the work that that I do on a day to day basis, working with U.S. cities primarily, um, there's really this idea of like this is America, we know what to do, this is the way we do it. And so on both of those fronts, I think being Maybe it's also being Canadian and being in Australia. Like there's sort of a similar way of doing business, I think, and a similar sort of like, you know, we're not huge countries, but we're not small countries. So we're willing to be open to the world and take in other foreign ideas. Whereas like working in the U.S. sometimes and working with the engineering community, it's often just like, you're not from here. Don't tell me what to do. Go away. You know, you're from Copenhagen. That's there. This is here. Whereas, like, we always premeditate that because that's sort of the first thing we hear. Well, this yeah. is in Copenhagen. Um, but it's, I think it's being also in the planning community here in the conference. Like, it's much easier for people to be like, okay, I can understand that just good ideas are transferable, like Jam said at the beginning. Um, and and we don't have to take it on face value. We're not trying to say everybody should be blonde and everybody should be wearing Danish scarves. You know, it doesn't have to become Copenhagen. We're not saying go that far. We're saying take the good ideas and apply it to your local context. Have you been to other cities in Australia or is this your first time in Australia? Uh, both of our first times in Australia. I spent a week holiday in Melbourne before, okay. which is really nice. But with, with, with the Copenhagen eyes... Um, agenda, Lens. your ideas, you know, in terms of bringing that. This no, is your no, first no time. agenda, but I could just uh, I couldn't turn off the eyes. You know, yeah, I'm always yeah. looking at bike infrastructure everywhere <laughs> I am. And have you had much? I mean, since being here at the, con- uh, at the Congress, um, in terms of that reaction from policymakers, are, have, do you think you got some traction? Are you, are you getting invited back, for example, to give advice uh, to either yeah, local so. governments yeah. or the state government? Because the state government here has agreed to commit quite a bit of money yeah, yeah, to the bicycle. Yeah. To the bicycle network. Well, yeah. we've, we've been fortunate with this Congress, too, is that we're not just, we haven't just been doing, like, talks. We actually have been leading a bunch of workshops, yeah. um, specifically with a lot of people at the State Department of WA. So we've been really sort of having FaceTime with a lot of folks mm-hmm. that really do this on a day-to-day basis, that, that work with council or councillors themselves and mayors themselves. Um, and, you know, we've you know, definitely been able to exchange business cards and have yeah. a, lot, a lot of good conversations. Um, and I think there's a willingness to do things differently here, which is, I think, really exciting for us to see. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask because Paul was on it. I mean, what's like, what's your general impression of, like, I mean, okay, so both of you've seen a bit, a bit of Perth. You've seen some of yeah. Melbourne. Mm. Like, are Australian cities different from what you imagine them to be? <laughs> for me, I'm I'm really thrown off, right? Because I've been I'm originally from Canada. I've been mm-hmm. living in Scandinavia for five years, and I flew halfway around the world, and all of a sudden, it feels a bit like autumn, or at least it did on the weekend. And everything looks like Canada. <laughs> Not everything, but there is still some uh, some some similar traits in terms well, of built the, the form. And, color, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Some similar traits in terms of built built form and neighborhood design and these sorts of things. So yeah. it's a bit weird for me. Yeah, I it, there's. I think when you look at uh, particularly Perth, in many senses, I mean, you've got a classic CBD, yeah. and then it drops very quickly down to basically into kind of suburban yeah. morphology very quite quickly. Yeah. You know, within about three kilometers basically mm-hmm. when you think about the CBD and the, the structure but it's it's you know I mean we are in the middle of autumn now and it's, th- it's 30 degrees today I'm okay know. with that yeah <laughs> yeah this might be the tail end of it though really I, it could be it could be so uh, are, you, are you guys um, uh, well actually the whole urban bike the old bikes and all these things that bike shares. the bike share yeah, yeah. things um, I've been kind of watching a lot of this in the press and mm-hmm. particularly the bikes which uh, don't have docking stations mm-hmm. so there's Taking these the world by storm there's these bike <laughs> graveyards yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, bikes which are found 
in the middle of trees and stuff like this here. Um, how does that kind of fit in with your kind of, you know, your model, your approach to cycling and this market model, I suppose, of trying to provide cycling and engender cycling as, a, as a, yeah. an activity? In general, the rise of bike share over the past 10 years, you know, really leading the, the, the wave in, uh, in Paris and then sort of expanding onto North America and into Australia now has been incredibly uh, influential in making the bicycle seen as an everyday mode of transportation again. You see, you see people dressed in everyday clothes, hop on a bike and ride down streets that don't even have proper infrastructure and it's starting to work. You know, people are catching on to it uh, and people are driving, they're seeing these people dressed, uh, dressed for, for business or whatever, yeah. riding a bike and they, it, it's working. It's, yeah. uh, really well, it's, making, it's making past non-cyclists yeah. demand for better infrastructure because yeah. they yeah. get on a bike share bike and they're like, I don't feel safe. I'm going on streets that aren't safe and you're giving me this bike share bike. So city, come on, do something. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's starting to, to turn those tides a bit, I think. What about I mean safety and helmets? Are they deterrents? Is it important? I mean, I don't know what in Copenhagen they don't wear helmets generally, no. right? I mean, there's very few countries in the world with mandatory helmet laws. Australia is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So what what do you think of that as a our, our as an impact on cycling? Our perspective is one of pro choice. It's it's one of if you want to wear a helmet power to you, yeah. but um, we do not believe that the government should be regulating what people are wearing. Okay. Rather, it's the government's responsibility to make them safe on the roads. Yeah. Sounds really very Californian, <laughs> rather than Canadian, because that's, like, that's the California, California has that kind of attitude like to, to, motor, to motorcycles and everything as well. You can, the helmet yeah. thing becomes, you know, the, the, the helmet thing's interesting because it, it's an argument and, and people's position tends to be based on a moral standpoint yeah. rather than an, an empirical one. Because yeah. the, the empirical evidence suggests that oftentimes there's, there's really very little overall yeah. holistic value in helmets, yeah. mm -hmm. and sometimes they could be actually negative. A deterrent, yeah. A deterrent, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's, it's, it's a moral argument, it's, you know, and I often find people making that mm -hmm. argument is that they, they take a position on it based on their morality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. Well, the thing is, I think we often, we often hear uh, really, really loud proponents of helmet use from the medical community because they're seeing isolated cases of people hitting their heads and saying, yeah, well, if they had trauma. It. Exactly. The problem is they're not looking from it as much of an epidemiological side of it. They're not looking at it from more of a systemic view of does the helmet actually change behaviors on both the cycling and the motorist side. I mean, we have evidence to show us through bike share where people are not wearing helmets generally um, that uh, we actually have seen that drivers treat cyclists with more respect they're more cautious because they seem more vulnerable. Mm. So, ah, so right. yeah, yes. there's a lot of the transport yeah. psychology that's lost when we're only listening to medical professionals talk about these one, you know, these one-time yeah, cases so a, that we're actually. Yeah. Using. So a cyclist with a helmet is more robust than they can take being whacked by a car, basically. Mm -hmm. In I mean, terms of the psychology, it's not, it's not particularly logical, but yeah. 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 So it's like armor. It's yeah. like it's this is armor. Yeah. They, they'll they'll be all right because they're. Yeah. They're kitted out in many senses. Yeah, I mean, okay. ultimately for us, we, we don't want there to be any impediment to cycling because we know uh, the strongest indicator of, of, of lowered risk and safety in cycling is a study from the early 2000s called Safety in Numbers. And we know that the largest, uh, sorry, the, the largest factor in increasing safety for cycling is more cycling. So we need to get as many people onto our streets on bikes as possible. And the first way that's going to happen is through protected and connected infrastructure. And I mean, I don't, I don't personally believe that helmets will create, uh, you know, a huge deterrent of people getting off their bikes, but why do we need to mandate it? What, what yeah. is their benefit getting out of it? If you feel safer with a helmet, power to you. Yeah. So 
Where are you guys off to next? Are you on to another job somewhere? Are you on another congress? Back to Copenhagen. Back to real work? To do some real work. To do some real work. We've been avoiding our work projects for two weeks, so time to get back to see the emails piling up now. Oh, you can you can work in those emails. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That's what weekends are for, right? Yeah. Exactly. No. Exactly. No. <laughs> I kid. Okay, guys. Um, look, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time for coming yeah, in and speaking us. to the Urban Broadcast Collective uh, and hearing all about Copenhagen eyes. Um, is there an Amsterdam eyes? Is it? Have you got a competitor? There, well, there's, 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 there's a guy on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he actually does consulting work. No, he's, he's more of a blogger like Michael yeah. used to be. Yeah. So, so maybe that's it. when you two hive off to create your own. Um, Consultancy. That's a. I'll be on the lookout for Amsterdam eyes. But I have copyright on that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so you're going to domain squad, are you? Yeah. I'm, yeah I'm, I'm, I just might do that. Yeah, but perfect. look, wonderful to speak. It's great. Um, and welcome to Perth. And Thank I hope you have a great time while you're here and stuff. So. Thanks, guys. Okay. Yeah, thanks thanks so a lot. Much. Cheers. Cheers.